Welcome to Afternoon Light, the podcast of the Robert Menzies Institute at the University of Melbourne. I'm Georgina Downer and I'm the host of Afternoon Light and the CEO of the Robert Menzies Institute. The Institute is a Prime Ministerial Library and Museum devoted to upholding the legacy and vision of Sir Robert Menzies, Australia's longest serving Prime Minister. On Afternoon Light, we explore contemporary issues relevant to Sir Robert's life and legacy with leading thinkers from around the world. Thank you for joining us today. Well, welcome. And today we're speaking with Dr. James Waghorn, who is a Senior Research Fellow in the Melbourne Centre for the Study of Higher Education. And James works on the history of knowledge and history of universities. And he's also University of Melbourne's de facto historian. He's the author with Gwilym Croucher of A History of the Australian Vice-Chancellor's Committee, Australian Universities. And next year, we'll be publishing a book on the history of of the Melbourne University Union. Welcome to the Afternoon Light Podcast, James. Thank you. It's lovely to be here, Georgina. Oh, it's great to have you on the podcast. And today we're going to talk about Menzies and Melbourne University. Robert Menzies was a student at Melbourne University from 1913 to 1918. And then I think in 1919, he had a brief stint as a tutor He had a really fascinating time at Melbourne University. He loved it by all accounts. And then, of course, latterly, after leaving politics, became the university's chancellor in 1967 to 1972. But... I wanted to start our our chat today by going back to the beginning of Melbourne Uni and how how it came to be. How was it founded and and what was happening in Australia and Victoria at the time? Well, I mean, the University of Melbourne is established in 1853. It's the second Australian university and it's introduced really very soon after Victoria separates from New South Wales. And the intention is very much that it should help to civilise the colony. So it's bringing knowledge from overseas, the the best knowledge, scientific knowledge, to the colony. The university is set up as a a modern institution as well. So while it's it's got these connections overseas, internationally, and back in time to these ancient seats of knowledge, it's also quite a modern institution as well, and deliberately so. So it's a secular institution, avoiding all of the friction and difficulties that... uh, were affecting the universities of Oxford and Cambridge and so forth with their pledge and the requirement that, that uh, all of these those who attend pledge allegiance to the Church of England. So it avoids all of that. It's a modern university. It signals that as well in it, the appointment. It has four professors when it opens and one of those is teaching classics, so it's combining Latin and Greek. This is a symbol, of, believe it or not, this is a symbol of modern modernity. Really? Was it, uh, and that was ancient Greek, no doubt. Ancient Greek, <laughs> yes. oh yes, yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So it's combined <laughs> classics, and then yeah. with that you have a professor of natural science, you have a professor of mathematics and physics, and another who was dealing with everything else, modern languages, history and so forth. And so in... in in adopting that model, this is a this is the university is setting itself as a as a modern institution, and it moves very quickly actually to introduce uh, professional training. It establishes the, the Australia's first law school um, that opens in uh, eighteen fifty six, and it then follows that up with a medical school and an engineering school. 
the first in the country. So what it is is in some ways... So one of the questions about this early university is who's it for? So in, in one sense, it's for the children of wealthy pastoralists who have that kind of regular income, less so actually to do with the gold rush at all because the gold rush is temporary. It's, it's, it's strike-it-rich, eureka kind of moments. The pastoralists that dominated the economy in, in this period in, in terms of individual wealth because it would, you would come in every year and indeed pastoralists were the key benefactors and donors to the university as well. So it's providing those children of pastoralists a, a rich liberal education but it's also very much a city institution because mm. it's, it's training those professionals, training those lawyers, those doctors to assist with Melbourne that is just booming at the moment because collectively as an economy, the gold rush is hugely influential. It's bringing enormous wealth into the colony, uh, even if it's not necessarily something that individuals might experience as much. So it is, it is providing the kind of professional class that goes into marvellous Melbourne in the 19th century. And how many students are we talking back in the 19th century? Oh. Not many, obviously. For only four professors. <laughs> well, I, I, think, I think it opens with 16 students. Wow, okay. Um, that's pretty good, though, four, four that, students to one professor. That number falls away quickly, <laughs> which is actually one of the impetuses for introducing professional training is you right. want to get students in. Yeah. And it grows. it grows by the late 1880s. It has almost 300 students, which is... In the terms of the uh, 19th century Australian university, actually, I think the largest in Australia at that point, it falls back with the 1890s depression, but it's still, we're talking a few hundred students. Mm. It's a tiny place. You have, um, well, we can talk about that uh, shortly, but you have the, the, the role of, of residential colleges being much more prominent as well at this of time course. because it's quite a small institution. So, yeah, it, it's a very small select group who then move into positions of authority in the colony. And all these students are paying fees. Are there scholarships for, for students who might not be the children of wealthy pastoralists? Uh, well, that's a good question about the, the, about the background of students. But, yes, absolutely, there are, there are scholarships that begin to be introduced, often taking the form of exhibitions, like Menzies one, for the top student in a particular year. And the amount of that exhibition is almost identical to the fees that you would pay the next year. But mostly, up until the 1890s, it is a fee-paying institution. Most students are paying fees, um, unless they're sort of hunting for various, I don't know, uh, scholarships that are provided by community organisations, by churches, by sort of family connections... But yes, it's, you pay up front and you pay on the, for, for, your, for, for attending university, absolutely. That's, that's the normal model. From the 1890s, we start to see free places being offered for people going into teaching. You start to see the first kind of cadetships in the early 20th century, training people to go in and work for government in constructing railways and so forth. So you start to see that that begin to happen, but predominantly, the predominant model anyway is that it is a fee-paying institution in the 
And tell me about the, the physical manifestation of the university. We're sitting here chatting in the old quad, which is the, the oldest part of the university, I understand, the historic heart, very much sort of modelled on that kind of Oxbridge cloisters. It's, it's beautiful. I mean, the university is a, a, a fascinating display of Melbourne architecture through the decades, isn't it? You've got some brutalists, you know, 60s, you've got, you know, very, very modern manifestations in the um, in the Arts West building now and of course the early noughties the law school down on um, Pelham Street but but tell me what what about the the old quad where where it all started where we're sitting today so this is as you as you rightly point out this this was actually called the university for in the first period it's the first major building constructed and it's it's set up to be a a a residential building as well as a teaching facility. So it has in the upper floors apartments for each of the four professors who start and they're arranged around the quadrangle. The lower floors where we're actually sitting at the moment it was a teaching room. In fact, where we're sitting is actually a later addition, which is a story I'll come into in a minute. Um, but there are teaching rooms on the ground floor. The northern wing of the quad had two raking lecture theatres for the sciences where you'd want to be able to demonstrate to students. This is this is the scientific principle we're learning now. Let me demonstrate it for you on, on a stage. Whereas the other rooms are teaching rooms in, for students in the humanities and the classics and so forth who want that sort of different space. There's also a uh, council chamber as well in the northern wing. But the whole thing is really... You know, it, those those are the things that are built, and the cloister, um, the the covered walkway, anyway, at the in the northern end, is built at this time. Right. But none of the others are, and the front of the building is a kind of rough-hewn, unfinished wall, actually, that they end up training a creeper on to try and obscure it. <laughs> um, Why was it unfinished? Uh, <laughs> money, actually. All right. Regrettably, <laughs> of course. Um, money, but also also the the kind of there were opportunities that the university might have adopted if it had have wanted to finish it off in the in the 19th century. They might have constructed Wilson Hall, for instance, um, a fourth wing of the quadrangle. They might have constructed all all manner of buildings. Actually, might have been built into it, but instead it was favoured. Um, the university preferred to build those elsewhere, all for individual reasons and different things. Um, so for a long time it was this three-sided quadrangle, this was the joke, <laughs> that it's a three-sided quadrangle, open to the south and it has a lovely garden in the middle of it and it, it was still known as the university. Um, and then gradually it had uh, extensions built onto it. So it had the room, actually, as I said, the room we're sitting in now is a 1920s edition, as are the east and west covered walkways. And then... The southern aspect is only actually constructed in the late 1960s. Oh, right, relatively new. When, yeah. when, when uh, Menzies was Chancellor, actually. So it's a very recent thing, actually. And, and the, the cloisters themselves are not actually... Well, they're, they're, they're concrete uh, structures that have the sort of uh, shape moulded into them rather than structurally uh, cloisters. So it's a, it's a gradually put-together building and it's had very many uses over its life. It's been a teaching space, as, uh, as I indicated initially. 
From the 1880s, it houses the Melbourne University Union when that's established by people such as John Monash as a student established the Melbourne University Union. It houses the, the Princess Ida Club, which oh. is um, in actually this wing of the building, which was the, the club established for university women. Oh, right. And um, who is Princess Ida? Princess Ida is a, uh, is a character in a Thackeray. Ah, oh, right. Um, and so Princess Ida, yes, it's, it's a long story. I don't, probably don't have time to go into it now. But it is about a women's university or a, a, a oh, woman right. who in, invades a male university. Um, and so this is the name that's adopted by this club. And they establish themselves opposite sides of the quadrangle and they have various sort of rudimentary uh, facilities. The quadrangle then moves on into various other uses. I mean, you would have known it as the law quadrangle, of I course. I did, which is and the law library at the uh, the northern end, yes. Exactly. Ma- many an hour spent there probably not studying, probably flirting too much. <laughs> but, uh... Well, that's, that, is, that is at least part of the use of a university library. Indeed. It's the indeed. use case. Yeah. So um, it has had various uses anyway, yeah. and, and only recently has it been renovated to create the spaces that sort of recaptured actually some of its 19th century grandeur. And so. and the renovation project, I understand, you know, through it there were discovered hidden doors and, and all, because it had been, there'd been so many additions and so many different uses, when they were pulling apart all the all the sort of patchwork of bits and pieces over the years, they um, they found a lot of surprises, which is uh, was I'm sure really exciting. But we we're uh, we're very lucky to be in this room, which we we call the Menzies Room, overlooking the South Lawn. It's got the a replica heritage carpet, and um, and then the the black and white Menzies tartan curtains in the Menzies morning tartan. So it's all uh, it's all sort of come to life quite beautifully. Um, I wanted to ask you, James, about student life in the university at, at the turn of the century when Menzies was was starting university. In, he started in 1913. No doubt, was pretty different to um, to student life today. Um, can you describe what Menzies would have experienced back in 1913 as a as a first year law student? I mean, absolutely. It's a very, very I mean, it's it's quite a different place, but in in some ways, but it's also Obviously, there are continuities as well running through it. But it was, you know, it was a place of uh, more than a 1,000 students by this stage. So it had grown still still absolutely tiny compared to the, the institution we know today that has more than mm. 60,000 students. But it is... Uh, so it's a place with about a 1,000 students. Meant that you people knew one another mm. ac- across... You'd have known everyone. We well, could have if you wanted to. And you'd, you'd certainly have known uh, who, who Menzies was eventually, <laughs> absolutely, because he became a figure who was, who was quite uh, well-known and, and larger than life in a lot of ways. So it has moved beyond the quadrangle. So the quadrangle is still here, but it's feeling its uh, age a bit, actually, by, the, by 1913. The rest of the university has sort of spread out around it. We have the, or the ornamental lake that is to the northeast of the quadrangle. And facing onto that is the old museum that was built in the 1860s that the union has since moved into in 1910. You have a clutch of medical buildings to the east, where I'm now housed in the Melbourne Centre for the Study of Higher Education, and engineering to the south. To the west, you have a row of professors' 
houses oh, along sure. Professor's Walk. So there are there are lovely Edwardian houses all the oh, way yes, along. Oh yes, the red there. brick ones. Yes, and yeah. University House is the survivor of mm. that of that series of houses. So it's it's a residential place for those people. You have all sorts of people actually have houses on the camp, on the campus. So it's it's quite a residential space. And to the north, you have those colleges, which are have their imposing buildings. You know, Ormond College has this enormous, great building, and Queens and and Trinity as well. And they're just beginning to think about putting in Newman, the Catholic uh, oh, right. college. Uh, and Menzies was a, a non-resident student at Ormond College. Mm-hmm. Um, so he he did have a, an affiliation with, with the college, although his parents, I presume he was living with his parents through his time as a student here. I don't, now rem- I don't know that off the top of my head, Georgina, where he was living. Um, he may have been living with friends, I'm not sure. But to be a day student at Ormond College had a real meaning at this time, actually, mm. because those colleges are providing uh, in, an entire teaching program, actually, that replicates the university's teaching Also, Also, much, much more similar to the experience at Oxford and Cambridge, where you, are, you know, receive tutorials and, and a lot of teaching from the college itself, not just from the university. That's right. Although I'm not sure... I mean, it... That, it it's a technical question, actually. I'm sorry, I get very specific. Um, it is, uh, I think you, you would call them lectures, actually. They're not the same as Oxbridge tutorials, which are the sort of small select group where uh, the sort of Socratic method. But they do replicate the university's teaching program. The university has, you know, fewer than 100 staff. And they're about the same, actually, employed at the various colleges. And many of the names that we associate with Melbourne University from other, you know, who then moved back to the university actually got their start at uh, Ormond and Queen's and, and Trinity providing those additional lectures. And they are providing... that they're, they're actually following the syllabus and they're saying, well, you've had your lecture from that old duffer down at the university. <laughs> now we're going to repeat it again. And you might get it actually from a, a younger scholar. Uh, might offer a different take or a different perspective, might be a bit more lively sometimes. It was the cause, actually, of, of some tension around this time, and we see that in the, the 1904 Royal Commission into the university, that where the, the university sort of shook off the colleges a bit and tried to put them back into their place. Oh, really? But it was a... You know, it was so there was some competitive tension there. More than a little. Because, <laughs> because if you were the professor at the university, that... that the definition of your role was you are the expert, the expert, the one. Um, you didn't have other professors in your department. You were the professor of uh, history. You were the professor of classics. That was your expertise. And then to have some upstart... <laughs> at a college. At a college, potentially <laughs> also criticising the way you've taught the subject and saying, mm-hmm. well, you know, so-and-so have said this, but actually you can look at it this way. I mean, that is that is... That is troubling, actually. So, and was there much um, communication with uh, universities in the in the UK in Britain? Were, I mean, certainly our universities here are, are modelled on the the universities in Britain. But with, was there a the flow of of personnel or or um, at least papers? You know, exchanges of letters. I mean, we're certainly not in the um, you know. <laughs> Not, definitely not in the internet age at that stage, but, uh, you know, everything would have been done very slowly through letters and I can't imagine phone calls would have been at all at all likely. 
A, tele- a telegraph, perhaps. A telegraph, yes. Perhaps. But <laughs> would you need to have that kind of level of haste? Uh, I think... Well, maybe not. And at some times. But I, absolutely, there was regular correspondence between the university and other universities around the UK, around the United States, all over the place, actually. There was a real uh, a connection between these universities. So there was that sort of official level that you'd have that discussion. But also, most of the professors at this university had had their training overseas. Of course. And yeah. mostly in Britain. So they maintained those personal connections as well with their former colleagues. So they would have their own networks as in the biology field or whatever. And they would... So that there are there's always these kinds of connections going on all the time. Mm. They're often... Uh, occasionally, I should say, not often, occasionally they are taking leaves of absence and going uh, and conducting some work over in Britain, taking leave from the university. They're also connected all around Australia as well and into various positions, taking various positions where you'd need someone who's university, a university professor to set up something like a museum or a, an observatory to offer expert advice. Right. So well, I, was, I mean, modern Australia at that stage is such a young country, so you know, all these institutions need to be established that we might take for granted now in 2021. There, you know, there weren't museums, there weren't specialist um, you know, bodies to investigate parts of life or you know, over- regulatory agencies. So this is where, I guess... Um, public servants, the government will lean on the academy much more so perhaps than today to provide that expertise. I think in, yeah, I think, yes, there are a few few things in there. I don't think those, a lot of those institutions are actually very modern when they're introduced here as well, actually. So they're not something that always was overseas. So that's one of the reasons you want the expert Mm. who has, has the kind of cutting edge, if you like, uh, knowledge who can then bring that to bear and explain well this is how we run this kind of institution this is how we and and that expertise has a kind of double edge at time and some uh, contributions from university figures are, are sort of regrettable in hindsight but so it is and that, that so th- the main the main point we're reaching here is that the university is not really something that's siloed within itself right and university staff are absolutely occupied with teaching students yeah, and they're massively overworked and everything else, <laughs> but they are also doing these, making these contributions to Australia and also connecting Australia internationally and making sure that we are uh, relevant and involved. So, yeah, the university, I mean, it does, when you think about what a university is, I mean, it is, it is a lively place. The, the mm. deeper you look, the more connections and more interesting angles you find. Mm. Fantastic. And and tell me, James, what about the the student experience? Menzies studied a um, Bachelor of Laws and then went on to do a Master's of Laws. And uh, he, what what would he have experienced in in those in those courses? I mean, we sort of have an idea today. You know, Bachelor's three years, a few hours of lectures, a lot of a lot of hours of self directed study. <laughs> Was it was it similar to the university experience today, or or was it quite a quite a different one? I think you'd find parallels, absolutely. But the law degree, so the law degree is is a four year degree at this point. The first two of those years are essentially the Bachelor of Arts, and you could actually transfer from the BA 
into an LLB at the third year level um, because it, you know, if you look at Menzies' card, his student card, he's doing all those British constitutional history and things like that. Yeah. And he's, um, which was part of what, what was a, what, what made university, at this university anyway, professional qualifications. They weren't merely technical things. You had to have that liberal education embedded mm. into it. I was just looking at the prizes he, he won. He really excelled at a whole variety of um, facets of university life. He won the Dwight Prize in British History and Constitutional History, the John Madden Exhibition in Jurisprudence, the Jesse Leggett Scholarship in Roman Law, Law of Contract and Law of Property, and then, of course, the famous one, the Bowen Prize for an English essay, um, which was, uh, I think, A.W. Martin, Menzies' biographer, said these achievements were early signs of Menzies' drive towards public prominence and leadership, and he had a triumphal undergraduate career that foreshadowed his later success. So, you know, quite a quite an active student and a and a brilliant student. But you know, getting that really wide variety of of um, of student experiences too through all the the subjects he was he was able to study. Absolutely. So he is he is winning prizes, as you say, right the way through. And this is underwriting his training at the university. Mm. Quite literally, because his parents were not, they weren't wealthy pastoralists like the no. parents of many of his his contemporaries, I'm sure, at the time. So he needed, he needed to win prizes in order to, to fund yeah. his university um, studies. I mean, you could see, if you look at his student card, he does extremely well in those subjects where he wins the, uh, the exhibitions, yeah. the prizes. And then he passes some of the others. So you can sort of see him focusing. One might speculate. I wouldn't. Um, but so he, he was, What he was interested in, he was really interested in, and the ones he was, well, he just sort of... It's a commendable, <laughs> commendable attribute. So, you know, he failed Latin. Did he? He did fail Latin, yeah, in his first really? year. But then oh. passed it. And he's not the, not the first, not the last to fail Latin. It was... Um, but, you know, he's, so he's, he's clearly a, a really able student, isn't sure. he? And he's really working quite hard at university. So, so yeah, that's, that's the LLB. And then you get into the technical courses in, mm. the, in the later years. The master's is, um, is a different degree. It's about your professional standing. So you have to have a certain amount of time in, in practice, in professional practice, um, and then you sit an examination to show that you are the master of your field and by this stage that that amount of length of service had sort of dropped down to it was only one year and the examination was actually the final honours examination as well so effectively after you'd been a year out and working it was you paid a fee and because figures like Menzies had already passed that exam. So, so it's almost like articles of clerkship for law then you're doing your year your first year out as practicing as a lawyer in order to to get your final qualification. Yeah, that's mm. right. And, mm. and, and so it is, it is about your standing within that professional setting. Um, and, and, and Menzies, beyond his studies, he was an active participant in the, university, the life of the university. He was president of the Melbourne University um, Union. Um, the SRC. Yeah, yes. the SRC, uh, which um, obviously would have meant he was an extremely prominent student in the student body. Um, he was also um, 
president of the Christian Union. He was editor of the Melbourne University magazine. And you've, you've such a treat for me. You've brought um, today a copy of the 1916 Melbourne University magazine that uh, Robert Menzies edited uh, and you can see his name in it and, and references to the historical society that he was also a member of. So so anyway, let, let's start with discussing the SRC, the Student Representative Council. What was it and what was, what was Menzies doing when he was involved and president of it? So the SRC is the student advocacy body and it, it represents all the students. It has a council... Um, literally a Students' Representative Council, comprised of people elected to represent the various constituents of the university, so the different faculties and so forth. And Menzies is, is president in 1916. He's also editing uh, Melbourne University magazine in the same year. So the SRC, it provides the conduit between students and, and, and the university. It offers a way in which it can raise causes and grievances and so forth and bring those to the attention of the uh, academic committees of the university and, as well as the university council. And that goes both ways. It also offers a way for the university council and the academic board to, to get a, a, an authoritative position on the student uh, interest. So it's a, an institution that is established in, the, uh, in 1906 um, and it... It actually, so you, you understand this, you're a lawyer, it has, there, there's a sort of tripartite structure of extracurricular life at the university. So you have the SRC, which represents the interests of students. You have this union, uh, which is slightly reformed from the 1880s body that I mentioned earlier, um, which collects student fees to attend, its, uh, union fees, so this is to pay for all the clubs and societies and to pay for the, the facility that it manages as well which was then a clubhouse. Um, and then you have a recreational grounds committee to, uh, with responsibility for sport. Um, so you have these three things. So the, the union's this bureaucratic thing in the middle that controls the building and, and doles out the money. And you have the SRC on, on, on the side representing students. And it, it becomes this more... Uh, at, at times it becomes the more aggressive thing and the more... <laughs> the more um, thrusting thing and then you have the, the sport over on the side as well. And, and I mean this is obviously um, Menzies first foray into to politics really, learning how to how to you know, deal with his contemporaries, represent their interests and, and make appeals to the sort of high authority and it, so no doubt he would have uh, relished practising his advocacy, representative skills, meanwhile editing the, the Melbourne University magazine, so having the power of the pen as well. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, this is, this is a rich tradition of, of people who have been involved in student politics going on to various leadership positions. And the, lo- the list of figures like this at the University of Melbourne is incredibly long. And is absolutely. I, I mean, I think that it, it must have been instructive to him because he has... He's such a strong-willed person, actually, mm. and he does he does become a sort of larger-than-life figure, actually, particularly when he edits that that uh, Melbourne University magazine. It's full of his writing and his poetry, and it's very florid stuff. <laughs> Clearly, a quite an earnest earnest figure. So he becomes, you know, it, editing that magazine. He becomes this this. We we learn a lot about Menzies, actually. Mm. And the student body does too, and he, so he he does he does 
get back as much as he puts out, actually. <laughs> and he is sort of singled out at times um, for his positions and for some of his, his self-promotion. Nothing wrong with that. It wouldn't be the last. <laughs> no. Um, and his kind of imperialist views, actually, mm. which undoubtedly he held. I don't think he, he, would, <laughs> he would actually stand up and say, fantastic, that's right. Yeah. I am a champion of empire. And so he, he faced criticism from others and there are various other things, particularly in the next year's edition, which turn on Menzies a bit. And the editor of that magazine, Dorothy Andrews, has to say, enough. <laughs> and she writes this. But yeah, because of course, 1916, we're in the middle of the First World War. So, you know, there were huge debates about conscription and, um, you know, issues around the role of role of empire. And um, and as you said, Menzies had strong views and, and didn't shy away from explaining his views and, and advocating for them. So what, how, did, how did they play out for Menzies through his role in the magazine or in the Student Representative Council? Obviously, he was president of the Christian Melbourne University Christian Union as well yeah. and involved in the, um, the rifles, what was it, the Melbourne University Rifles Brigade? The militia, yeah. The militia, which That's was his sort of military service. He didn't serve in the First World War. His two older brothers did, a point of contention, of course, that becomes quite a quite a tricky issue for him to navigate when he's in politics and criticised for not having served in in the war. But anyway, it was it was a family decision, and that his parents had decided that two sons out of three was enough for their family's contribution to the war effort, and they couldn't do do with all three sons being being at the front. But but how did, how did these debates play out for Menzies in in the university? Well, I mean, this is. As, as you point out, he arrives in 1913. He has a, has a good idea about ways at university. It's very clear, actually, in some of his editorials that he has a really clear idea about what a university ought to be. He calls it a, a, a light on the hill, actually, in a mm. phrase that's adopted by his political opponents and lay, <laughs> coincidentally. But he sees it this is, as, a, as a place of truth that, is, that has to shine that light around on the community and elsewhere. Mm. And... He is a, as as we've said, a champion of empire. He's a great believer in in empire and duty and and uh, the responsibility. But it's a really harrowing time at the university. Yeah, I can imagine. You have mm. people leaving uh, to go and serve. Enormous pressure all the time to go and enlist. You have various regulations introduced to say that you you, sh- you must en- enlist. Students are coming to the university aged 16 often at this, at this stage. That's the age of entry to the university. So they're not yet eligible to go and serve until they reach 18. So there is a decision to be made while you're at university about what you're going to do. And it's a wrenching one for someone like Menzies. Um, it, uh, you have lots of, lots of stories from soldiers who are serving at the front in Melbourne University magazine, often quite critical of the university and how, how little, in their view, the university is doing. There's you even a, um, a, an exchange, isn't there, in the in the magazine between Menzies and a, a student who's gone to the front who, who criticises Menzies for focusing on, on the more light-hearted things going on on the campus rather than focusing on, on what the sacrifices that are being made by compatriots abroad and uh, and I think Menzies is quite quite sort of moved by that uh, by that exchange Un- undoubtedly yeah and 
also he was criticised for sort of claiming the mantle of the university, which was claiming all of its servicemen and those who were going to the front. And and so the claim, what, you know, what are you actually doing? You're claiming yeah. this, this, this esteem without uh, contributing yourself. Mm. So it's a very difficult time. And, of course, it gets much more difficult with the introduction or the discussion about conscription and, and, and moving away from voluntary service. So it's no longer... The, the, the debate moves to whether, the, the, whether people should be compelled to go and serve. Which which takes it up a notch, yes. In terms of the uh, the expectation on every individual, but also it it uh, makes those kinds of debates about truth and light and and the purity of empire brings them into a kind of sharp uh, a sharp contrast and a sharp um, uh, moment where individuals have to decide where they stand. Mm. And Menzies, of course, is very much in that. He organises a famous sort of debate slash debacle that <laughs> happens um, at Melbourne Hall at the university in 1916 while he is the uh, president of the SRC, where he has he raises this issue. It's a kind of naive moment in a way for, yeah. for Menzies where he thinks we'll have this discussion. He knows it's going to be difficult, so he organises it over two days so mm. the speakers aren't going to go across each other. This is about the question of uh, conscription. Conscription, yes. And so he has the, the affirmative go first and he has the, the, the champions of empire speak first. And is he one of the speakers? No, 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 no. he's not, no. Just a convener. He's the, he's, yeah, he's organising the, uh, the event. And then the opponents of conscription come and they're drowned out by song and the national anthem, God Save the <laughs> King, being sung at loud voices and it becomes a terrible scene actually. So it's a really tricky... Sort of early council culture, deplatforming it back in 1916, is it? <laughs> oh, the university, uh, <laughs> university culture was f- proudly deplatforming in, in the, at this time, <laughs> right across the, the field. It's a very controlled space, actually. Mm. That's another issue, and we don't want yeah. to be anachronistic when we talk about it. No. But, I, I mean, yes, absolutely, you could see that. And, and I think, you know, you can see that... The thing we have to remember, of course, is that Menzies, when he's a student, isn't the, the sort of grizzled political warrior we know from the 1960s. He's, a, he's a, just a, he's a 16, 17, 18-year-old kid and he's learning. Yes. And, and so all of these things are really formative on his, on his, his growth, I think, as a, as a political figure. But he's obviously quite fearless, precocious, has an enormous self-confidence, I mean, to, to be putting himself up to these positions look you know people do of course there's there's always that type of student on campus but but the vast majority don't they they lead a much quieter life so he was he was already already um i guess carving a future for at least some sort of public profile um public office for himself at university you can see that in the positions he sought the the efforts he put into to his his studies but also the extracurricular activities he got into and the debates he was willing to publicly tackle yeah he loved debate actually yeah and the debate is a real feature of the university at this time where you where you they tackle some extraordinary difficult complex issues and they do that within the, the rules and strictures of the debate. Mm. That all falls apart a bit in 1916-17 where, where it just becomes too heated. But debate is something that he admires. He comes back, you know, he's, 
He's involved in university debates into the 1920s as well. He comes back to speak and he's, he's very involved in that sort of, uh, that aspect of university life. So, yeah, absolutely. And he is not shy. No. It. And he, he does have a pretty high regard for himself and he knows where he's going and everyone around him can see that. And so he gets the kind of Australian sort of brickbats you would expect of, of someone who's, who's, who's on a mission to, to rise. But, you know, it's, it's hard, I think, when we think about him as a student, as a 16-, 17-, 18-year-old, it's hard to criticise that figure. Oh, um, the, for, you, have to, you have to admire the enthusiasm. Absolutely, yeah. And, and the fearlessness um, that, he, that he approached his, his student life with, it's incredible. Let's fast forward several decades to when Menzies was Chancellor of the University. I, we, are, we are skipping many, many decades here, but these are, these are, um, these are the moments when his life was so, so closely touched by by Melbourne University. So he was Chancellor from 67 to 72. He he'd retired as Prime Minister in Australia Day, 1966. And um, he loved the university. You speak to Heather Henderson, Menzies' daughter, and she just um, you know, cannot, cannot emphasise enough how much he loved. Partic- he loved universities in general, but he particularly loved Melbourne University. He'd opened the Bailey Library in 1959. He'd opened several buildings around the university at or Macaque Court at Ormond, um, International House, the, the college that was established for um, particularly students who were international students coming on the Colombo plan. Uh, but, but being Chancellor of the University was a, was a wonderful coming home for, for Menzies, particularly for a Prime Minister who had done so much to, to open up opportunities for Australian students by expanding the number of universities and the number of scholarships available for students at universities. And this is a conversation we have to have for another day. I know about what Menzies did as Prime Minister for Tertiary Education in Australia, but but tell me, what were his key achievements as Chancellor of the University for those five years? Well, so as Chancellor, it's a, it's a, it's a Ceremonial yes. position, yeah. But, so, but Menzies is Menzies. Let's be honest. <laughs> Menzies is Menzies, and uh, he, he came to the university having, as you say, he'd, he'd been so involved in universities, particularly after the Murray Review. He established the Australian Universities Commission that had promoted and, and constructed universities all over the place. He had a very fixed, uh, very, very. Uh, not fixed is the wrong term. He had a very strong idea about what a university should be, mm. that it shouldn't just be a technical training place. He arrives at the university and, and, and I think he actually encounters the, what, what, the consequences of some of his policies. <laughs> so the university at this time is, is grappling with the, the consequences of the great expansion that Menzies is partly responsible for s- supporting. Mm. So you have this university that's struggling to find enough people to teach it's trying to hire people to, to, to teach in all sorts of ways. You have the pressure of student numbers. All across the university, there's this great building program going on to, to house all these additional students. Mm. The numbers have reached 15,000 by this point. And there are buildings that are opened, actually, all across the university during his time. So things like the John Medley building, which is to the university's south, the uh, South Lawn that we look out onto actually here is also a legacy of his, of his era. 
So he's overseeing, as part of the university governing body, this great expansion in the university. Buildings are going up all over the place to try and house all these individuals. At the same time, you have a new University Act that's, that's passed in '67 that perhaps Menzies had some influence over. You have the university opening up a, a great big administration building. It's very exciting, I know. <laughs> a great big administration building that they're naming after Raymond Priestley, the first salaried vice-chancellor, the first full-time vice-chancellor of the university from the 1930s. And in that, they're putting this new uh, administrative structure that the university has because it has to grapple with a university that's no longer a 5,000-person operation. Now it's a 15,000 and potentially growing operation. The the effect of quotas actually is quite interesting is that it it promotes the sort of full-time education, actually, and a lot of those scholarships that Menzies had been involved in creating also increase the number of students who are full-time, which with various uh, knock-on effects. The other thing that Menzies grappled with, of course, was student unrest because mm. this is... So he's, he's, in a way, he's thrown back to his war era <laughs> yes. because we have another overseas war. Different war, war yes. Yeah. Different war, not an imperialist concern, a, a decolonisation uh, issue in Vietnam, of course, yeah. which, is, which has brought students and, and student leaders into great prominence we have the great moratorium marches around the national capitals, the Melbourne University Union that has since been rebuilt and rebuilt again by this point. And we, um, we'll, which we'll read about next year in we, your book. We yeah. shall. Um, <laughs> becomes a kind of a base for this yeah. campaign. Yeah. That they're, public, they're, they're broadcasting pirate radio from the tower and the moratorium marches are gathering here. And these students are also really criticising the university so this is something he has to grapple with and I think it's really challenging for that generation to think about what, what this kind of student pressure might be. Mm. So that's also part of his legacy. Of course, he has to... He retires sort of suddenly, actually, in 72 when he falls unwell. So he's not really able to see that through. But part of the change that is happening under, that, under Menzies' era as Chancellor, in the, in, insofar as he's responsible for these things, is that we have student undergraduate representatives on the university council. We have this growing uh, accountability to students that um, has, its, has its origins in this sort of era that, that Menzies is, is chancellor of the university. And the final main thing that I'd say about his, his time and is that he finishes off the quadrangle, of course, which is where we are. Ah, lovely. So he yeah. builds the, the, the final wing with the, the senate chamber up there, the, the council chamber up there. And all of the famous undercrofts that, that people like to, to gather under. And so this is also a great legacy of his time. Yeah, it's a, it's a real coming full circle for, for him, um, starting his, his career sort of um, at Melbourne University in this building and then, and then finishing it here upstairs in the, the, south, the south wing. In those council chambers, uh, what a... What a what a wonderful! I think the old quad is a wonderful representation of the of the story of Menzies and Melbourne University, not least the story of Melbourne University. Um, James Waghorn, it's been uh, an absolute pleasure to have you on the Afternoon Light podcast. I could have talked uh, much longer about Menzies and Melbourne Uni and Melbourne Uni in general. I'm very much looking forward to reading your history of the um, 
Melbourne University Union, um, not least because we're getting a new union building, aren't we? Uh, it, or student services building over by Swanson Street. So the, the question is what happens to the current union building, which is a, I think, is it a 1960s cream brick? Um, it's actually sort of, I think, ageing well. It probably when I first, you and I were first at Melbourne Uni in the 1990s, it looked a little ugly, but I think it has a charm now. So let's hope it's not totally lost forever more in the in the the um the the endless building projects of melbourne university it's uh, always a hive of interesting construction activity um not least telling a, a, a fascinating story of architecture in melbourne over the over the, the decades um but it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on afternoon light uh james waghorn thank you very much thank you georgina it's been a pleasure The Afternoon Light podcast is brought to you by the Robert Menzies Institute at the University of Melbourne. You can find more about the Institute and our podcast at robertmenziesinstitute.org.au. We're also on Twitter, on Facebook and LinkedIn. We look forward to you joining our show next week. Thank you.